Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation, the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode The Musicals of Meredith Wilson, Part One. My guest today is author Dominic McHugh, whose latest book is titled The Big Parade, Meredith Wilson's Musicals from the Music Man to 1491. Dominic is professor of musicology at the University of Sheffield in the UK. His previous books include Loverly, The Life and Times of My Fair Lady, Adapting the Wizard of Oz, musical versions from Bound to MGM and beyond, and he's also served as editor for The Letters of Cole Porter and The Complete Lyrics of Alan J. Lerner. As it turns out, the timing of this episode couldn't be more on point, since after being derailed when both of its stars contracted COVID, the big new Broadway revival of The Music Man starring Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster is supposed to return to Broadway tonight. Many listeners will know by now that The Music Man is one of my all-time favorite musicals, and one that I consider to be one of the greatest musicals of all time as well. And it's one that I know backwards and forwards, inside and out. Over the course of my career, I've danced in it, choreographed it, produced it, lectured about it, and seen it countless times. So it was a great pleasure to discover in the big parade so many remarkable and surprising things that I didn't know about the show, and the extraordinary struggles and challenges that Meredith Wilson grappled with during its development, including, as recently reported in the New York Times, his efforts to include a disabled character in the show who was intended as a major focus of the story. And that's only half of the book. The rest covers Wilson's other four major musicals, about which I knew even less. I found it all to be fascinating, and I think you will as well. Here we go. Welcome, Dominic. Thank you so much for joining me today on Broadway Nation. Oh, thank you so much for making time for me. I so enjoyed reading your new book, 
the big parade. There have been biographies of Meredith Wilson, including his autobiographies. But this is the first look at all of his Broadway musicals together. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. There were maybe one or two dissertations, but this is the first time someone's looked at the musicals. And I really thought he's such an unusual figure that he deserved to have a book about all four of them. Originally, I was talking to the publisher about just doing Music Man. But uh, I thought if I do that, and if I do a really detailed book about the Music Man, then no one will ever write about 1491. And it's kind of sad. So that's how it ended up happening. I think it's fascinating the context that you provide using all four shows. I mean, the first half of the book is The Music Man, and the second half of the book are the other three shows, which I think is the right proportion. But it's not that we're not interested in those other shows. In fact, sometimes I know a lot of people find flop shows more interesting than hit shows. What was it that inspired you to take this on? What was it about Wilson? You've written about many other figures who have much bigger careers on Broadway. Why Wilson? I just have fun. I'm an academic, and it is my job to produce research and serious publications, but I basically only ever do things that I want to do that I'm going to find enjoyable. My favorite musical is My Fair Lady, so I did my PhD on that, and then I turned it into a book, and then I did more work on Learner and Low. And then my second favorite musical is The Music Man. So here we are. It's literally as simple as that. And the funny thing to me, though, about those projects is there hadn't been a book about My Fair Lady or very much on Learner and Low, and there hasn't been much on Meredith Wilson or The Music Man, despite that being such a big show and obviously it's coming back to Broadway now but that's been a treat because it's not like having to find out you know small extra new things actually it was possible to just start from scratch and say how are these musicals written and then the other thing is I just found his overall career interesting he had all these non-Broadway activities before he wrote A Music Man at the age of 55 or he was 55 when it had its premiere on Broadway and then he wrote this small group of shows and then retired because he was ready to retire so it's a really curious overall picture and story. I became interested in all of that as well as The Music Man, and that's how the book took its shape. I think what you just said, him being in his 50s when he starts to write a Broadway musical, is really one of the most extraordinary things about Meredith Wilson. It's a young person's game to a certain extent. Everybody else starts in their 20s or even at least in their 30s. And then that he takes on the challenge of writing the book, the music, and the lyrics for a show. And as we know, you can count on at least one hand the hit musicals that have come from someone being the sole author author of a musical. Most people are sort of giving up by the age of 55. Very often Broadway writers in their 20s or 30s, they're of the generation that's most present on Broadway and therefore they have their big hit and then they become veterans and yes, they might produce more, but they tend to be big when they're 20s, 30s, maybe 40s, but he starts in his 50s. It's like an anomaly, but then part of the reason for that is that he'd had several other careers, all of which were also quite successful. And then to the second point, as you say, that this sense of an overall vision like an auteur. It's like someone writing, starring in, producing, directing their own film or something where the whole thing comes from a single vision or at least a single vision is clearly at the heart of the piece. And that's how he saw The Music Man, although I think he actually struggled as a librettist, as a book writer. And that's one of the things I get into in the book is how did he go about writing the script? Because that's really, I think, what took him all of those years, even though he went through lots of versions of the score, actually. He was just struggling to find out what the story is, how to structure it, all of that kind of thing. We can be cold as a falling thermometer in December in the west of our weather in July. And we're so white and so that we can stand punching noses for a week at a time and never see eye to eye. But what the heck? You're welcome. Join us at the picnic. You can have your fill of all the food to bring yourself. You really ought to give Iowa a try. Provided you a conference. 
Meredith Wilson was born in 1902 and grew up in Mason City, Iowa, which would become the model for the town of River City in The Music Man. In an interview in Time magazine, Wilson would famously say that he didn't have to make up anything for The Music Man. All he had to do was remember. And indeed, to a large extent, the story was inspired by his experiences growing up there during the first two decades of the 20th century. Many details and plot points, such as the excitement of packages arriving via the Wells Fargo wagon, the Payne's fireworks display featuring, as the Midwesterners pronounced it, the last days of Pompeii, Beethoven's minuet in G, barbershop quartets, and the stubbornness of Iowans all stem from those memories. However, in the big parade, Dominic makes a compelling case that as important as Wilson's childhood experiences were, the incredible achievement of the music man is best seen as a culmination of Wilson's entire wide-ranging career and diverse and eclectic activities up to that point. So he started out, um, he trained at Juilliard under another name and then joined Sousa's band. So he had these four years where he's in the greatest marching band in the world. And then he moves to the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, the greatest orchestra in America. He encounters Ravel, Stravinsky, Toscanini, the greatest classical musicians of the day, which is crazy. And then suddenly he moves to the West Coast and takes over a radio station. And then for a good 10, 15 years, he's working mainly on the radio during the war. He was in charge of the armed forces entertainment so he was working with all these hollywood stars bing crosby sinatra garland all of the people you would expect so by 1945 let's say he'd already done all this stuff he also wrote two symphonies by this point he wrote the scores for two films including the great dictator with charlie chaplin you just can't believe that he interacted with all of these projects and actually most of them were on a major scale I, I really don't know where this came from because he just grew up in mason city and i don't know where the ambition even came from the vision to do that and then have this portfolio career which seems like a very 21st century way to make your life he was certainly no novice to show business when he decides to write a musical he had success in all these different fields that seem somewhat unrelated including becoming a personality on his own yeah that's a funny one on the burns and allen show and on other radio programs he sort of created this persona for himself and a lot of that he was actually making a mockery of himself he would slightly play the fool or the buffoon on sort the, the radio and right sort of the yeah, yeah. to a certain extent which is a curious thing to decide to do he was often the butt of the jokes on those programs but then he was also serious so he wrote this pamphlet on i think it's called what every young musician should know it's almost like a music theory book but a very practical one unlike anything else you've ever written so he also had a serious public profile the, the range and versatility is unusual for a broadway writer i think even allowing for bernstein who also had range and versatility it's interesting. We compare Bernstein and Wilson. We compare the two shows. We compare Music Man and West Side Story, of course, because they went up for the Tony Award against one another. I have a whole episode about that. But I thought your point in your book was really interesting that Bernstein and Wilson both share a lot of things as well. Their relationship to the New York Philharmonic, they're both conductors, they both come from the classical music world, and yet they're most known in some ways for their Broadway output. I've always found it interesting how people pit the two figures against each other. There was a good 20-year period, I think, which is beginning to pass, where 
people were saying that West Side Story is so modern and much more engaged with issues of race and ethnicity and representation than The Music Man, and therefore it's the greater work. Whereas actually, I think now there's critique around West Side Story and representation. So I wonder whether actually maybe the revival of The Music Man, depending on how it goes, it might have the opportunity to redress the balance a bit, because I don't think that it's an old-fashioned work. It's very creative. Some of the ways in which the songs work are unique and unusual in the way that a lot of West Side Story actually is quite old-fashioned in a funny way. It's great. But actually, Bernstein wears his classical learning quite heavily Mm -hmm. on the score. It's very symphonic very operatic. Bernstein is very present when you're sitting through West Side Story, whereas Music Man, there's this lighter touch and actually the sophistication of Marion the Librarian, for example, musically. Marion It is equivalent to those West Side Story numbers. Madam Librarian But it just happens in a much lighter kind of way, I guess. What can I do? My dear, to catch your ear, I love you madly, madly, madam librarian, Marion. Heaven help us if the library caught on fire and the volunteer hose brigade men had to whisper the news to Marion. It's a very complex score, a very complex piece of work all the way around. And yet, as you say, it hides all of that, makes it feel on the surface that it's just something you just toss off, which I think is the essence of art, basically. What he certainly didn't toss off was the book. I'm actually going to speak later today to the freshman writing class at NYU. I'm going to lecture them today on story structure. And one of the things I often say, and we'll say again to them today, is that one of the hardest things you can possibly do in life, the hardest tasks is writing a musical. And another of the hardest tasks in life is to create an original story. And when you put those two things together, you create an almost impossible task. You spend a very fascinating (laughs) whole chapter on the six years that he struggles to do these two things. How did the challenge of doing these two things, which maybe at first seemed like it would be an easy task for him, prove to be difficult? Actually, at first, he said very memorably that he didn't believe it could be done. And it was particularly Frank Lesser and Fuhrer and Martin, who were going to be the producers, who were saying, you should turn your autobiography into a musical. There's material here that could be the inspiration for a musical. And he thought it was going to be difficult. And indeed, it was. The problem was, really, that there's no story. He started out, and it could be anything. And all he's got, really, is a kind of Midwestern setting. And it's going to be somehow about music. And maybe there's going to be some kids in it. And I think the 4th of July timing of it was always there from the beginning. But basically, because you're not adapting something, it's like a blank page. And this was a great impediment to him because every aspect of the piece, there were multiple options. It could be anything. It's so much easier to write West Side Story, one would think, after reading about the genesis of the book of The Music Man. Because even though, obviously, West Side is not a straight adaptation of Romeo and Juliet at all, at least there's a sense of rival people and there's adversity and there's people in love and they die maybe Maria doesn't die in the end but the structure is in there somewhere and they just had to figure out how to adapt they actually follow almost all the plot points of Romeo and Juliet step by step Yeah, and we just add music dancing and we tell the story as if it happened in the 1950s in New York City music man Paul Meredith I don't know how he did it and of course in the end he did get help from a number of people but particularly this guy Franklin Lacey who's always been credited as 
as the co-book writer, but who is also a rather shadowy figure and in a way remains a bit shadowy in that he didn't have a big public career beyond The Music Man. But he came in and it's very clear, you read all these hundreds of drafts that survive, as I describe in the book, and suddenly it gains a lot of focus once Franklin Lacey's name is on the front. It's also fascinating to see that this main plot element that he starts with and hangs on to throughout eventually goes away, but would have made it an entirely different show had he been able to figure that out. And I don't know that that show would have been as successful. Probably not. You mean about the disabled child? Exactly. So- I find it a really fascinating thing. For me, it was the most interesting thing that I found. Although he does allude to it in his autobiography, I really hadn't appreciated that The Music Man originally was going to be about a small boy who is in a wheelchair and about the adversity that he faces in a parochial community. And the story was going to be about how Harold Hill comes in and integrates him into the community and makes them show him respect, basically. And understanding how powerful and controversial and cutting edge this was in the 1950s is quite difficult to us today. And in retrospect, it sounds a bit cringy. And you can certainly see that that there are aspects of it that probably wouldn't play well at all today. But in the 1950s, disability rights we're only just beginning to take off parents at a grassroots level were having to try and create some kind of protection for children with disabilities because there was nothing. There was no legislation, no law. They had to create a charity. And then the other aspect of it was, of course, lots of veterans had come back from the Second World War facing all kinds of physical disabilities. There wasn't legislation around accessibility in public spaces, buildings, things like that. So there had to be a lot of sudden adaptation of all of those things. And here's Meredith Wilson, who's always depicted as such a conservative figure politically wading in on this subject. So while we can certainly critique some of the details of what he had in mind, which of course he didn't bring to the stage so we shouldn't criticise him too much, but some of his ideas were really problematic, like the idea that this kid Jim Peru could be inspired by music to stand and that his disability is just a case of willpower. That's a terrible idea. But Wilson is trying to say something about the value of people and seeing beyond things like disability. Wilson was genuinely committed to the cause as well. So I discovered that when he was writing The Unsinkable Molly Brown, he went on a kind of fundraising tour for one of these disabled children's charities. So he was actually fundraising for them too. So I find it all really interesting because of what it says about Wilson, not just about what it says about the music man. He's much more interesting politically, I think, than we assume. And did that have some relationship to his personal life? Do we know of anything in his background or someone personally that he knew that he was advocating for in this? I've kind of assumed so. I'm ashamed to say I never managed to uncover anything like that. It feels like it must be motivated by something like that. He didn't have kids, so it can't have been that. But he must have known someone to whom this related. But I think he was kind of an engaged guy. Some of his politics take us aback when we look at them now. But actually, I think he was thoughtful and sensitive. And this is part of that. And the original title was intended to be the Silver Triangle because this young boy was going to play the triangle in the band. Mm -hmm. The music was going to be part of that story as well. The question was, how was Jim going to become part of the community? Bearing in mind, he had physical disabilities. And one, one version of the show that went on for maybe about a year of drafts, the idea was the climactic moment would be Jim playing the triangle along with the boys' band and the right beats of each measure 
that sort of thing. It reminds us, you're quite right, that the title of the show was going to be different as a reflection of the fact that the whole thing was about something else. And as you point out in the book, it probably was taking the focus away from Harold Hill. The title changes from The Silver Triangle, which is about the boy, to The Music Man, which is about Harold Hill. And the boy becomes Winthrop. That's right. It becomes a compromise, very watered down. But still someone with a disability. We have a president right now who suffers from that disability. Absolutely. And not to be dismissive about that at all. But Winthrop was in the show as well already. So the Wells Fargo wagon scene was actually in the show quite early on in some formation. moment that we're familiar with from the final version of the show where Winthrop actually joins in and has a solo was in the show back then. So he was just a kid in the town and in the end they sort of conflated these two characters into one person so that it was less challenging. And I guess that's the issue with Winthrop. The issue seems relatively benign compared to the the scale of drama that he was exploring around Jim Peru being a wheelchair user. Don't go away. Broadway Nation will be back with more on the big parade right after this short break. Hi, this is David Armstrong, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Factor as a sponsor to Broadway Nation this week. This spring, you can eat stress-free with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. You can choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or my personal choice, Vegan and Veggie. You can also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages that'll help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. If you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. These are no-fuss, no-muss meals, and Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. You simply heat and savor the good stuff. And you can tailor it all to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can pause or reschedule the deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast, premium meals without the need for cooking. And we're celebrating Earth Day all month long at Factor, so look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for the lowest carbon footprint meals. Here's what you do. Head to factormeals.com BN50 and use code BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box. That's code BN50, as in Broadway Nation, BN50 at factormeals.com BN50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Do it now!
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I thought it was fascinating the way you describe how the characters morph and evolve and their names change. And Marion doesn't start off being in the Peru family, but Mrs. Peru is there from the beginning. But they all have various different guises, which are surprising based on where we know where it went to. Absolutely. I think I'm a little overcommitted to the theme. If I have to criticize my own book, this chapter was really difficult to manage because I had so much material around all these different outlines and scripts and things. I think it's at the heart of admiring the final achievement is understanding how extensive and difficult the process was. You're quite right. Looking at it, there are some really interesting different permutations. In one permutation, Marion was the daughter of Mer Shin. So that's a very curious relationship. In one version that I find quite moving, both Harold Hill and Marion are orphans and their relationship is about how they have that in common. They have the same sort of loss and they see it in each other and they're attracted by it. I think you could even play in that in a revival and sort of create some depth through maybe reintroducing some sense of that. And even Marcellus, who seems so incidental in some ways, in some drafts, is in cahoots with the mayor and is very much against Hill. And then he ends up being the the guy that helps him out. It's really curious how most of the characters went through multiple versions and combinations and bits of them were redistributed. It's very strange. And the mayor was quite evil in several versions of it. Yes, he came and took poor Jim Peru away and shoved him in an institution. It's terrible. I mean, you can't imagine something like that in the music as we know it today. But as melodramatic as something like that sounds, it shows how Wilson was really trying to take this thing seriously. This stuff is happening and it did happen. Disabled children in the 40s and 50s were taken away, put in institutions, some of them were experimented on. Really terrible stuff. I mentioned that briefly in the book. It was quite a daring idea and it's a shame he couldn't make it work. And how many versions of the script did you have access to? And where did you find them? Oh, I can't remember how many. There were loads and loads and loads and loads. It was very difficult. They were split between the Great American Songbook Foundation, which is in Carmel, Indiana, the institution set up by Michael Feinstein, who's a good friend of mine. He was very generous and helpful in gaining access for me to that material. That was mainly material leading up to about 1956. And then by coincidence, there were further drafts from 1956 up to the opening in 1957 at the Wisconsin Historical Society, which is where they have the papers of Kermit Bloomgarden, who eventually produced the show. So I was able to marry up these drafts from multiple places and sort of sift through them. But it was a very complicated task. And as I say, I think it was only partly successful. Well, I found it fascinating, sort of like a reverse mystery in a way, because we know where it ends. And (laughs) then to go backwards and see how all those strands came from different places was really interesting. May I have your attention, please? Attention, please. I can deal with the troubled friends with a wave of my hand, this very hand. Please observe me if you will. I'm Professor Harold Hill, and I'm here to organize a River City Boys band. Ultimately, the show becomes one of the biggest hits of the Golden Age, one of the biggest hits ever, the third longest running show of the 1950s. 
Why? What do you attribute that to? What about this show made it so successful? Musical comedy. I think that's part of it. Things were becoming quite serious on Broadway in terms of musicals by this point. By no means entirely. Things like Pajama Game and Damn Yankees were still happening. Things like that. But I think that the proliferation of attempts to write artier things, like Pipe Dream, for example. 1955, Rogers and Hammerstein, they adapt this novel that Steinbeck was writing. They involve Helen Traubel from the operatic world. The, the thing is not entirely serious, but it's sort of heavy somehow. This thing opened at the height of the Cold War. America was overshadowed by at least the threat of a very serious war only a decade after the Second World War had ended. I think it was comforting to people to go to the theatre to see this really fresh, unusual thing. It didn't resemble anything else. It's so non-generic, ungeneric, without genre. You know, so many aspects of it are just so surprising and remained so that I think people were just riveted by what a distinctive flavor it had and yet it has that old-fashioned feel-good factor so even though the constituents are not old-fashioned there is something really warm about its heart that I think is why it remains popular with a lot of people today. Well as you just said it does have this old-fashioned feel about it even though the writing is actually quite revolutionary in many ways I feel like the critics who see it as being a nostalgic piece of Americana fail to realize the subversive elements of it, which you point out very well in your book. We have an anti-hero as our main character, and we have this very transgressive woman who does not do at all what society is telling her to do as the two leads in the show. I think that the negative critiques that the show get are very patronizing. And part of it is being patronizing about middle America. The particularly East Coast intelligentsia think that anyone that's born outside of the East Coast is not very sophisticated. And maybe not without having revisited The Music Man lately, they just assume that this thing is a piece of silly fluff, a valentine to very conservative values. It's really not that at all. And Wilson, of course, spent a lot of time on the East Coast and the West Coast, was highly educated, was very smart. He wrote a novel. He knew lots of highly educated, smart people. He was innovative. He was a classical musician, primarily, really. And yet there is this negative thing about, oh, how awful the music man is and we need to put that sort of culture behind us and we need to embrace, I don't actually know what we need to embrace, but we can't embrace that. Let's not have a good time. Actually, there's relevant stuff here and I think it remains fresh when it's revived well. I hope they are going to revive it well because I think the piece speaks to me even though I'm not American and it's not sort of comforting me culturally about my cultural background because it isn't my cultural background. I just find the whole thing incredibly smart and entertaining and warm and funny and romantic. What more do you want from a Broadway musical, for goodness sake? When Wilson is critiquing this conservative community, it's a critique of this small town conservative values and how toxic they are, really, is what's at the heart of the show. When Marion stands up at the end and says, what are you doing? Look at yourselves in the mirror. It's powerful for that reason. And the fact that she has the sophistication and insight to do that is incredibly powerful. It's very difficult to resist the power of the moment because it's exactly pointing the finger back in at them. And Hill, of course, because he's come from somewhere else, he can see all these parochial values. And yes, of course, he's exploiting them for bad reasons. But then he turns around and actually there is good in him. And she manages to manage both the people of the town and Hill and say, come on, people, you know, we were doing good things here. Why are you being like this? Are these really your values? Is this really how you want to see yourself? I do find it really interesting. 
the other revolutionary aspect of it is the use of music, because the way Wilson uses music, not just to tell the story, but as part of the story. And he will continue to do this through all his shows. So he had this kind of leitmotif, to use a, a musical term in his dramas. He likes to think that music could change people's lives and change people. And so it's part of the story. We see this throughout The Music Man with the barbershop quartet, with the piano lesson, with the boys band. You know, it's there a lot of the time. Now don't dawdle, Amaryllis. Let's play your exercise. So do la re ti mi a little slower and please keep the fingers curved as nice and high as you possibly can. Don't get faster, dear. If you don't mind my saying so, it wouldn't have hurt you to have found out what the gentleman wanted. I know what the gentleman wanted. What, dear? You'll find it in Balzac. Excuse me for living, but I never read it. Neither has anyone else in this town. There you go again with that same old comment about the low mentality of River City people and taking it all too much to heart. No, Mama. As long as the Madison Public Library was entrusted to me for the purpose of improving River City's cultural level, I can't help my concern that the ladies of River City keep ignoring all my counsel and advice. But, darling, when a woman has a husband and you've got none, why should she take advice from you? Even if you can't quote Balzac and Shakespeare and all them other highfalutin Greeks. I mean, the music man works particularly well because it resolves the age-old question of why are people singing? And this thing that people hate, some people hate about musicals. There's no reason for this to be going on and people that can't accept the genre Actually, in this case, it works very well because it just comes naturally out of the situation because they're talking about music. And sometimes it's not clear whether they know that they're singing and dancing or not. And sometimes it's clear that they both do and they don't. Or sometimes it moves from one mode to another seamlessly in a kind of hidden way within a single number. I think this is another respect in which The Music Man is more sophisticated than West Side Story because West Side Story is very much about compositional presence, the composer's presence in the orchestra. And when people are singing, it tends to be very declamatory, whereas in Music Man, they're just singing some little song to each other. Or are they? Who knows? Another revolutionary aspect of the show was Eliza Redfeld. Tell us who Eliza Redfeld was. She was great. So she was the first woman, I believe, to be resident musical director on a Broadway production. Other women had done off-Broadway and non-New York productions, but she actually took over as the conductor. This fascinated me because it's another example, actually, of how the show is quite forward-looking in some aspect of its production and in ways that you know, who was conducting West Side Story? Not a woman is the answer. She must have been incredibly strong. I think she only died last year or the year before. There were lots of things in the press about her appointment on The Music Man, and all of them were patronizing. So she was interviewed, and the interviewer would say, what do you call a female conductor? Is it maestra rather than maestro? She went on What's My Line. They were trying to guess what her profession was. The best they could do is she must be one of the strippers from Gypsy. All of those sorts of things illustrate how women were seen in very limited roles on Broadway in this period in a way that's quite strange because Trudy Rittman had been a dance arranger on so many Rodgers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe shows by this point. But still, it's one thing to arrange things in the background for other people. It's quite another to stand there in front of the audience and lead this orchestra of men playing their instruments. I just find her a fascinating figure and I go on more about her than I do about Herbert Green who was the first musical director of the show because I kind of think her story is more striking and I was taken aback to find that. 
And how much did Wilson have to do with putting her in that position? It's not clear, except that he was very fussy about music. He attended the London production of the show and made all these comments and absolutely hated the guy that was the London conductor. So I suspect that if he hadn't been happy with her, that he wouldn't have endorsed it. His mentor and his publisher was Frank Lesser. He tended to be contractually covered, thanks to Lesser, around these sorts of decisions. So although I didn't find any correspondence to say it was his idea or he liked it or didn't, my assumption is he probably very much endorsed it and wouldn't have been threatened about it. The Music Man has a hit movie, I believe one of the greatest movie musicals of all time, one of the ones that really gets it right, that finds that perfect mix between the theatricality of the show and the reality of movie making and somehow blends those two things together. And with so many members of the original cast, I didn't realize that Paul Ford had been a replacement in the show until I read that in your book. So it's really another Broadway cast member in that company. But the show has been rarely revived on Broadway and not very successful. The Susan Stroman was the most successful revival that we've had. Has it been revived in London? It has been revived in London. It was revived in Regent's Park, I think, in the mid-1990s with Liz Robertson, the last of Alan J. Lerner's wives, was Marion. And we had a production at the Chichester Festival Theatre about 12, 13 years ago, which was quite good with Brian Conley. It is difficult to revive, I think. Clearly, the character of Hill is a very fine line between him being a hero and an anti-hero and a likable and dislikable person. You need an actor somehow who can pull off both the rogue and the hero at the same time. And Robert Preston was just so amazing at doing that. I never get bored of watching him do that in the movie. It's hard to find other people that can do that nowadays. Although back then, they were considering other people who seemed quite viable to me, like Danny Kaye and Gene Kelly. You can sort of imagine it. It's strange that the the Dick Van Dyke revival was unsuccessful because you would have thought on paper that he might well pull it off. But clearly he was too weak, not convincing enough as this villain. I saw that production and it just was not successful in really any aspect. It just was very flat, partly because he was flat at the center of it, which is amazing because he's such a dynamic performer, but he was not the right person for Harold Hill. What I find fascinating is that the show still has stayed at the center of the canon. Despite that, partly because it has been done in every high school and still is one of those shows that just gets done over and over again in professional theaters around the country. I've produced it. You can't kill it with a stick because it just works when you have a high school boy playing Harold Hill, strangely enough, more than when you have Dick Van Dyke playing Harold Hill. But it also has all those amazing characters. Everyone has a part and everybody gets to play a great part that really lands. I think that's what's kept it at the center of the canon in spite of it not being revived in the way that Hello Dolly or Guys and Dolls in London, you seem to do it there every 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) It's only a few years since we did that, four or five years, yeah. But of course, that's only half your book. We need to lie down now to get revved up for the other half, yeah. As you point out, the challenge of following up on The Music Man is not an easy task. I know that's a great story of L.B. Mayer was talking to Richard Rogers after Oklahoma, and Richard Rogers was saying you didn't know what they were going to do for their next show. And L.B. Mayer said, I know what you should do. Shoot yourself. And I think Meredith Wilson's somewhat in the same boat at that point. How does he follow up on this giant, giant hit? (laughs) 
To hear the answer to that question, I hope you will join Dominic and I on the next episode of Broadway Nation, where we discuss Meredith Wilson's other three musicals, The Unsinkable Molly Brown, Here's Love, and The Ill-Fated 1491. In the meantime, you may want to check out the episode I mentioned earlier, episode 19, West Side Story versus The Music Man, as well as one of my personal favorite episodes, episode 15, Trudy Rittman and the Women Who Invented Broadway, all about that incredibly talented woman that Dominic just referred to. Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. This episode is made possible in part through the generous contributions of Backstage Pass patron-level members Gary Fuller and Randy Everett. Thank you, Gary and Randy. If you love this podcast and want to delve even deeper into the world of Broadway musicals, I invite you to become a member of the Broadway Nation Backstage Pass Club. For as little as $7 a month, members will receive exclusive access to never-before-heard, unedited versions of every Season 2 interview and many from Season 1 as well. I often record at least twice as much conversation as ends up in the public episodes, and this includes additional in-depth conversations with my frequent co-host, Albert Evans. You will also have the opportunity to ask us any questions about Broadway musicals that you would like to hear answered and to propose topics and subject matter that you would like me to cover, all of which I will incorporate into a special series of Ask Me Anything About Broadway episodes. Last, but certainly not least, you will receive special on-air shout-outs and acknowledgement of your vital support for this podcast. And if you're feeling especially enthusiastic about Broadway Nation, there are patron and producer levels of support available as well. To join, just click the link included in the show notes for this episode on our website at www.broadway-nation.com. That's broadway-nation.com. Special thanks to Pals Mox for his assistance with editing, KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.